This is the sermon podcast for Salem Presbyterian Church in Winston-Salem. Thanks for listening. To learn more about our church, visit salempresws.org. That's salempresws.org. We believe preaching is best when experienced as part of the larger drama of God's people gathering. Something spiritually unique happens when God's people are together. We meet each Sunday to let the liturgy shape us, to hear preaching, and to take the Lord's Supper. And these acts are more robust when done together. Join us Sunday evenings at 5 p.m. in downtown Winston-Salem at 600 Holly Avenue. Princess Bride, um, Buttercup is the princess, and uh, she discovers early on that her true love, Wesley, um, has died, and she's devastated and brokenhearted, and then even worse, she's taken by uh, the ruthless Prince Humperdinck to be his wife, and forcefully engaged to him, and then she's captured by the dread pirate Roberts and is soon to die. And when she's given up all hope, all of a sudden, um, Wesley appears. He was the Dread Pirate Roberts. And she can't believe it. And she says, it's you. And he says, I told you that I would always come for you. Why did you give up? And she says, well, you are dead. And he says, death cannot stop true love. All it can do is delay it for a while. And then she said, I never doubt again. I will never doubt again. And then he says, there will never be a need, which I love. I love that part especially. Happens early on, so that's not a spoiler. Um, but it, it just reminds me of the power of hope and new life when everything seems like death, everything seems hopeless. And I want to look at those two things in this passage, both the hopelessness that you see in the women, and even more so in the men, and then the way that Jesus brings hope. So first of all, the hopelessness. On the first day of the week, this is verse 1, at early dawn, 6 a.m. or so, the women went to the tomb. That would be Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and other women. So they went to the tomb, and they took spices that they had prepared. And... This is a beautiful garden tomb that is owned by Joseph of Arimathea, a very wealthy man. He gave it to Jesus and to his followers because he respected them so much. This is Sunday morning, very early, and they are holding these spices, it says in verse 10. They're holding spices, all these spices. Uh, They're standing before this small door in a rock outcropping in Jerusalem. And it seems like a beautiful act of compassion to bring all these spices, to give of their resources and their time, to show up at the tomb, to put themselves in danger. It seems wonderful, but but it's actually a sign that they lost all hope. Because Jesus told them multiple times that he would rise from the dead. In fact, when the angels encounter the women, the angels are a little bit testy. And they say in verse six, he's not here, he's risen. Remember how he told you all the way back while he was still in Galilee three times. He told you he's risen. You know, why are you bringing spices? How did you even think you'd get in the door? 
Look at the stone that's right there on the ground. He, he, what are you doing here? Why are you seeking the living among the dead? The living one, the resurrected one. So that there's, you see there the power of the hopelessness of these women. That even the most, these are the most loyal followers of Christ. And even they are just completely blinded by despair. And so, of course, uh, we know they're not alone in that. I mean, we all know that. Uh, there's something called confirmation bias that you may have heard of. And it basically means that we're always looking for evidence to support the beliefs we already have that confirm our biases. Okay, so an example would be if you think President Biden is great, then you're going to look for all this evidence that describes the success of his policies and you're going to focus on those. You'll go to websites and you'll go to news sources that talk about that and you will ignore conveniently all the evidence about anything bad that's happening. In the same way, if you are someone who hates masks and don't believe that they do anything, then you're going to click on every article about how they are not effective and how the states that didn't use masks did really well and then you're going to ignore all the statistics that show how much they help. So, you know, this is left and right, okay? This is not political. This is confirmation bias. It's the human condition. It's hardwired into our brains. We are, we are not very intelligent creatures in some ways. Uh, we believe a lot of things just because we want to believe them. And here's the thing. I have never met a human being that has a confirmation bias towards hope. We are all biased towards despair and hopelessness. Now, there are people who are optimistic, but I'm talking about real hope. And so generally, all of us think that if we see any evidence that confirms our despair, that's true. And all the evidence of God's coming through in the past, his redemption, we tend to just ignore that to confirm our bias towards Despair. So think about a situation in your life where you feel hopeless. I mean, maybe you don't right now, but think about a time that you have. And surely we have all felt that in some way in our lives. But oftentimes, when I'm in a state like that, my mind will get stuck on some little piece of evidence that there's no way that this will change. There's no way this could change. I tell myself. Not only that, this will probably get worse. It's like a wagon wheel that gets stuck in the mud and just mired in gloom. And I forget the thousands of times that God has come through for me. All the ways he's answered prayers in ways that I never expected much later on. So we, we are always biased towards this kind of hopelessness. Even on Easter. And the apostles, the male apostles, are even more biased towards hopelessness than the women. Because... When the women tell them that they've seen this empty tomb, it says that they, they scoff at the possibility of a resurrection. It says in verse 11, these words seemed to them an idle tale. And that, that Greek is very strong. Idle tale is a, a very dismissive word. They were probably rolling their eyes. You know, these women are shaking their heads. Very dismissive. And, and they had actually heard a report of someone who had just seen it. So this is even stronger, this is a stronger level of hopelessness than even the women. And 
I don't know about you, but, but I've done this before. When, when, when I am feeling particularly hopeless and someone offers me just a little bit of a glimmer of hope, a little piece of evidence that maybe make, make, should make me a little bit hopeful, I just, I'll snap at them. I'll, I'll bite their head off. So for instance, um, I used to do this when the church was not growing at all. There were five years, we, we didn't grow at all. And, and I would come home and I would pout and I would wander around the house hoping that someone would come and find me pouting in a corner and comfort me. And Margie, my wife, would, would sweetly come up to me and look me in the eye and you know, grab my face and smile and say, look, things are fine. Like, it, it's going to be okay. You know, there's, there's reason to hope, and it's not about growth anyway. And whenever she would say something like that, I would, I would use some dark humor to cut her down. So often, so often. Because there was something about hearing that hope that I, I did not want to hear. There's a bias we have against hope. And God split open the Red Sea, like that song we were just singing. He split open the Red Sea, and he drowned the armies of Pharaoh, and he liberated the people of Israel. And guess what? A month, a month later, something like that, they, they're worried that they won't have enough food to eat. I mean, they've just seen God open the Red Sea, one of the greatest miracles in the history of the world, and a month later, they are not sure if God is going to take care of them. Because we become hopeless so fast. And there's something in us that is just biased towards despair. So that's the first thing, is the power of hopelessness. But there's a stronger power than that, and that is the power that the resurrected Jesus gives us to hope. A hope beyond this hopelessness. So it says in verse 2, they, they found the stone rolled away. And when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. These are the women now. They found the stone rolled away. This was not like a thin granite countertop kind of stone. I don't know if you've ever tried to think about what the stone was like. This is a 4,000-pound disc that's very thick. And so the stone was rolled away. And it was not rolled away because Jesus was like knocking on it to try to get out and an angel had to let him out. It was rolled away to show his power, to show that something brand new has come out of the tomb. It's, it's not just a human being. It's a human being and then some. It was to show that the radical nature of his new life, that's why the stone was rolled away. Not so he could get out but so that Peter could marvel at the thing that he saw or he didn't see. So it says in verse 11 that Peter went into the tomb and it says he saw the linen cloths by themselves and it says he went home marveling, marveling at what had happened. Again, another strong Greek word about ecstasy, shock. Like the thing that you've, Probably nothing you've ever had in your life has been like the way he marveled. But think about the most marvelous thing you've ever seen. Now, why was he marveling um, at these linen cloths by themselves? I mean, I don't know about you, but I've seen a lot of linen cloths lying by themselves. That doesn't seem like it's worthy of marveling. But the Greek word implies, and it's pretty important in this case, this is one of those rare cases where it really matters what the Greek says. The, the point is that the, the cloths, of course, they would wrap these people up like a mummy, right? They would, we don't do that anymore, but that's how they would put the spices in them. By the way, he had already been filled with spices and wrapped up. So again, the women are kind of out of their mind, hopeless, bringing spices at all. But the point is, he was wrapped up like a mummy, 
And the wrappings were not unraveled. You see what I'm saying? The wrappings were not unraveled. They were just sitting there. Uh, the, like, it'd be kind of like if you went down on Christmas morning and all the Christmas gifts were out and the, and the boxes were still wrapped. That's why Peter marveled. He, he could not figure out what he was looking at. And the point is that Jesus was of this new kind of thing, still very much a human, eating fish, nail marks in his hands, breathing air, cooking fish, actually. But he's entirely human, and yet he can pass through linen cloths. So that he's a human, but he's a new kind of human. He's a new kind of human. He was not resuscitated. People get this wrong a lot. Lazarus was resuscitated by Jesus, but he died later. Jesus was resurrected. That's only happened one time in the history of the world. And then it will happen again when all of us at the same time are raised. And this was a a new kind of, of thing, a new kind of person, a new kind of creature that not only passed through clothing, but passed through doors. He went through a door and can also pass into hopeless brains that are fixed on confirmation bias towards despair. He can pass through anything. He's so powerful. He's so alive. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, he is still acting on each one of us all the time. He's doing things all over the world by the power of his Holy Spirit, the ascended Christ. I mean, think about what came out of that tomb. Um, Not just another person that was going to die again, but this invincible king that was roaming the world to fight off your despair to fend off despair, when you get to that lowest moment, to put your head in his hands and smile on you and make your face light up, to encourage you, to comfort you in your darkest nightmare. Think about the thing that you just can't shake, uh, that that goes through your mind, like, like some kind of movie scene that you just keep seeing over and over, you can't get it out of your mind. That which makes it most likely for you to despair. Think about that in your, in your head right now. And then think about Christ breaking into that movie scene and raising his hands and filling it with light. You know, throwing back a curtain and the, the sun comes pouring in your room. That's what he can do. Because he has risen and this new creature that has ascended to the right hand of God, he can come around and talk to every single one of us and fill our minds with light. I don't know how he does that. I don't know what was going on in terms of the physics of what happened when he became a type of thing that could go through cloths. I I will ask that question when I see him. How does that work in terms of the laws of science? And he'll probably say it it doesn't. Um, But this amazing person is now on the loose, on the move, all around the world, and he's giving people hope in spite of their despair. In The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, C.S. Lewis' famous children's book, uh, these frightened children, the, the Pevensey children, you know, not even the teenagers, uh, they get stuck in this nightmare world ruled by a white witch where it's always winter and never Christmas. But they hear this little phrase from uh, Mr. Beaver, a talking beaver. They hear this little phrase, and, and he says, he simply says, Aslan is on the move. And it says that when they heard that phrase, there was, a, there was a surge of hope in them, just to hear that phrase, Aslan is on the move. And this is what it says. They had the feeling that you have when you wake up from a dream so beautiful. When you wake up from a dream so beautiful that you remember it all your life and are always wishing you could get into it. 
This is not a dream. You know, Aslan is a fairy tale. Aslan is a children's book. Jesus is not a dream. Uh, Nobody would have made up these stories. If you were making up a story of a resurrected human being, first of all, how would you even conceive of that? But if you were to do that, you would not have women being the first ones to discover him because women's testimonies at this point in history were not allowed in court. So you would not do that. Nor would you make the first proclaimers of the gospel look so stupid that they scoffed at the idle tale. Nor would you include a detail like the linen cloths lying by themselves. This is not a fairy story. This is not like the Lord of the Rings. This is not like Harry Potter. This is not like the lion. This is real. This happened. And he is alive today. I think one of the the common things that I hear people say they're most afraid of, I heard someone say this the other day, that they're most afraid of dying alone. Especially people who are, who are single maybe, uh, and they're older, and they, they fear that they will die alone. And there'll be no one there that will be holding their hands when they die. And, and the very best friend Jesus ever had, who was called the beloved disciple, his name was John, and he actually beat Peter to the tomb. Um, but this man named John, um, he was terrified of dying alone. He had very good reason to be terrified of dying alone because, because he, he was a Christian, uh, he was exiled by the, the Roman Empire to die on this island called Patmos, a little tiny island in the Mediterranean. He was exiled there to die, John, the beloved disciple, completely alone. So he's, he's completely alone. He's terrified on this island. So what does his friend do? the resurrected Lord, he comes and he appears to John, this amazing vision, this like a hurricane of revelation. And his oldest friend walks into his deepest nightmare. And this is what it says. And when you wonder what it would be like to meet Jesus, this is what it would be like. Like today, if you saw him, if he appeared to you. Revelation 1.12 says, his, his hair was white like wool, like snow, his eyes were flames of fire. His face was like the sun shining at full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. This is his best friend. I saw him and I fell at his feet as though I had died. And he gently placed his right hand on me and he said, don't be afraid, John. I'm the first, I'm the last, I'm the living one. I died and I'm alive forever and I will always be there for you. I will always be there for you. In his greatest nightmare and all of his despair, Jesus breaks in, puts his hand on his shoulder and comforts him. And I just, I believe that he will do that for anyone. Anyone that knows him and loves him, he will, he will do that. And he is available to anyone who wants him. He's not distant. He's not playing hard to get. He wants anyone to come to him and to ask him. It doesn't take anything. Just, you just ask him. The, uh, the last scene of Mel Gibson's Passion of the Christ, and I'll end with this. Um, not a great movie in my opinion. Very, very bloody, unnecessarily gory. I wouldn't recommend it. I would recommend going to YouTube and typing in last scene in Passion of the Christ. Last scene's amazing. The last scene is uh, taken, the, the camera is inside the tomb. And you hear this sound of a giant stone like slowly rolling away. And uh, this light breaks in from the outside. And the, the light is, of course, in the shape of the curved stone as it moves back. And you hear the sound, the light's breaking in. And then I love that he, you hear the sound of birds chirping. 
This is from inside the tomb, this place of death. And then you, he does a great job of this. You watch the grave clothes just fall. Brilliant. Like he, he got that, that detail. That the, the grave cloths just fall down of, their, of themselves. And the next thing you see is a profile of Jesus' face. And he's staring ahead with this fierce determination in his eyes to meet you at this table and to fend off all of your despair and all your hopelessness and to fill you with his hope. And like I said, this is a table that is for everyone. You, you don't have to call yourself a Christian you don't have to be baptized. You don't have to be a member of this church. You just have to want Jesus. And when I was uh, not a Christian growing up, and I would go to church, I didn't know what to do when the Lord's Supper happened. And I wish the pastor had said to me, look, if you don't believe this yet, or if you don't know what to do with this, like, we don't want to manipulate you at all. And you do not need to feel any pressure to come up here. And I really respect anyone that decides not to come up here. That's, that's, that's really impressive. So if you don't want to come up here, don't come up here. If, you don't, if you're not ready to, to say that this is real, if you still think that this is not true, then feel no pressure. But again, if you want him, if you want that hope in your life, then this is a table for you. This is a table for you. So on the night that he was betrayed, our Lord Jesus took bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body broken for you. And he took the cup and he said, this is, this, is the, this is my blood shed for you. So whenever we eat the bread and drink from the cup, we are proclaiming his death and resurrection until he comes again. So uh, the way we do this is if you want the wine, then go down that sidewalk where that little camera is and walk between the camera and that light post so don't trip over the cord and then come down here and then we'll give you hand sanitizer, bread, a cup of wine. You can take it back, don't partake, take it back to your seat and then we'll all do it together. If you want the grape juice, come down this row, go in front of that speaker and partake. So if those who are serving with me will come up here, let me pray for us. Uh, Lord, what a beautiful setting. All to honor the sun. Father, you are giving glory to your son even now as the sunshine, as the birds chirp. As